everybody, it's Mike from the Mike Wagner Show, powered by Sonic Web Studios and brought to you by our official sponsor, the Mike Wagner Show, international warring author, me and most Cynthia Missing, available on Amazon and paperback and ebook. We're here with a terrific lady who is a professor of law emeritus at Columbia Law School, which is the um, Edward Ross uh, Aronow Clinical Professor of Law Emeritus. Uh, she received numerous awards for her work on behalf of children and families, and she served as attorney in charge of juvenile rights um, Division of Legal Aid Society of New York and uh, co-chaired a task force for family court. She also founded co-chair of the board for the Center of uh, Family um, Representation. And also she has a new book, which basically indicts the family court and and a system, which is basically history of failure and the legal, um, the legacy of harm, uh, making a compelling case to dismantle family court, abolish um, family uh, policing, and also radically Basically, just reimagine care for children without a destructive state intervention as well. The book is called The End of the Family Court. Live, ladies and gentlemen, plus studios um, somewhere on the East Coast, the professor of law emeritus at Columbia Law School and also attorney in charge of general rights, um, division of legal aid in New York. And the book, uh, End of the Family Court, ladies and gentlemen, multi-talented Jane Spinnick. Jane, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. I'm happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you on board, Jane. So you're a professor of law emeritus at Columbia Law School. You received numerous awards for your work on behalf of uh, children and families. You serve the attorney in, in charge of Juvenile Rights uh, Division of Legal Aid Society in New York. You co-chair the Task Force on Family Court. You're the founding chair of um, the Board of Center for Family um, Representation. And also your new book basically indicts the family court system for long history of Failures. It's called the end of the family court. And um, before getting all that, Jane, tell us how you first got started. Well, uh, I've been practicing in and teaching about the family court for more than 40 years. I began as a lawyer with the Legal Aid Society, representing children in both delinquency and child welfare proceedings. And soon after that, I began teaching at Columbia and I created first a clinical program where my students represented children under my supervision in child welfare proceedings. And then uh, later, uh, we represented parents in similar kinds of proceedings. And the last program that I taught we represented adolescents and young adults who were aging out of foster care. So we were helping them with issues that they were facing as they aged out. They could be all kinds of issues around benefits, housing, financial aid, um, social security benefits, all kinds of things. Um, that they were struggling with in large part because they were aging out of a system that uh, had not really prepared them for the adult world. And unfortunately, there are about 20,000 young people who age out of foster care every year who are not um, part of families any longer. Wow. That is a staggering number. And uh, how did you first get involved with uh, family and children? Well, I began my career actually as a high school teacher. And so I was very interested in children's issues. And so when I went to law school, which was quite a long time ago, mm -hmm. I studied uh, juvenile rights. And that's how I began 
really doing a lot of delinquency work and then later the child welfare work. Mm -hmm. And what was that one precise moment that simply influenced you into what you're doing for the rest of your career? Well, that's a little hard to say. Um, certainly my experience as a teacher in high school um, helped me to understand the challenges both that children had, but also that their families had. Mm -hmm. And I would say that my career evolved as my thinking evolved mm -hmm. because I became to see I came to see more and more that um, I, I couldn't represent children if I didn't take seriously that they were part of families. And so my thinking evolved over the time that I was in practice and teaching to help my students to understand that even if they are representing a young person or they're representing a parent or even a child, they always had to see that person as part of a community, part of a family and part of an extended family, part of a community, so that you didn't as a professional um, think you knew better than their family knew or their community knew. And that was that was an important part of my own evolution in thinking. Mm -hmm. And which led up to the book of the end of the family court and uh, why families are important and why family court should be put in. We'll uh, talk about that with author Jane Spinnick. But first, you listen to the Mike Widener Show at themikewidenershow.com, powered by Soundcraft Studios. Visit online at soundcraftstudios.com for all your needs. Look at a professional website without breaking your budget. Soundcraft Studios is the answer. Soundcraft Studios offers fast, affordable custom web designs at below the competition weight. Call today, 1-800-303-3960. It's 1-800-303-3960. Or email to support at soundcraftstudios.com. Mention the Mike Widener Show. Get 20% off your first project. Soundcraft Studios, take your image to the next level. Also, time to give an official shout out to our official sponsor of the Mike Widener Show, international warring author Mia Molsonzia. If you love fast paced mysteries, you love Missing by Mia Molsonzia, available on Amazon and paperback and ebook. Missing is fast paced and intriguing with an unforgettable twist. It takes place in four countries two strangers, one target, where truth is illusion and those you love be the first goal missing. It's available on Amazon and paperback and ebook. Missing by Mia Molsonzia has garnered great reviews. And Evil Evan endures by Howard's celebrities, including Joanna Cassie, Forge Riley, Eminem's. So grab your copy today for Goes Missing by Me and Melson Zia, available on Amazon. Also, check out the Mike Widener Show at themikewidenershow.com. There are 40 podcast platforms, heard in 100 countries, including Facebook, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Also, Anchor FM, iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, Audible, Apple, Pod, uh, Podbean, Odyssey, Buzzsprout, and more. Also, follow us on BitChute and Rumble. Make sure you subscribe. Follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, and more. Take us with you on any mobile device. And for great gift ideas, go to Amazon.com. Check out the Mike Widener Show podcast. T-shirts, pop sockets, throw pillows, tote bags, hoodies. Makes great gifts 24-7. Go to Amazon.com. Check out the Mike Widener Show podcast. And for more great gift ideas, like great books like Missing, Once, and Wrinkles. Also, great merchandise, T-shirts, pop sockets, hoodies, phone cases, and more. Amazon.com slash me and Molson Zia. Check it out today and support the Mike Widener Show on Anchor FM, PayPal, and the themikewidenershow.com. We're here with the professor of law emeritus of Columbia Law School and the uh, author of the book, The End of the Family Court, Jane Spinnick, here on the Mike Widener Show. And before we talk about the book, The End of the Family Court, you serve the attorney in charge of juvenile rights um, of legal aid in uh, New York, and you co-chaired a task force on um 
Family Court as well, and also founding chair of the board for Center for Family Representation. So a lot of these, um, you know, chairing out there and just making a big impact. And uh, of course, you also got numerous awards as well. Well, I, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking that this system could be reformed. Uh, I worked on reform efforts both in New York and around the country mm-hmm. to, and uh, sat on a lot of commissions and task forces, all thinking about how to reform the court. And I came to the realization that this court really can't be reformed and it really needed to be abolished. And that's mostly because the family court, which began as a juvenile court at the beginning of the 20th century, was started as a social court, not a court of law, but really a court that was supposed to help families solve their problems and to fix families who were different. It was also supposed to be a court that treated children differently than adults when they got into trouble. Of course, that's something we want to hold on to. Children aren't the same as adults, and even our Supreme Court has held that we need to treat children differently in uh, juvenile proceedings than we do in adult proceedings. Mm-hmm. But But one of the main purposes of starting this court was to deal with the flood of immigrants coming into this country at the beginning of the 20th century. They were different than earlier settlers. Um, They spoke different languages. They had different ideas about culture. Uh, They dressed differently. They even looked differently. Mm -hmm. And... The reformers at the beginning of the 20th century really thought that they needed to be turned into, quote, real Americans. And so the court was started with the idea that a benevolent judge, along with maybe a probation officer or social worker, would be able to transform these families into something different. Mm -hmm. Well, that that part of the original court, that belief that families can be fixed or changed or improved through some kind of court mechanism has stuck. And today the family court is still seen as a problem solving court, even though the long history of this court really establishes that the court has never solved problems for most families who find themselves there or most children who find themselves there. And yet judges continue to have enormous discretion over these children and families in ways that really undermine the idea that it is a court of law ultimately. Mm-hmm. And where do you, where do you think uh, it's gone wrong? Well, it's it's gone wrong almost from the beginning. Um, In the area of delinquency, even though the idea was that children were going to be treated differently, in fact, often the difference was more in name than in actual practice. So jails became detention centers and prisons became reform schools and often 
young people were sent away for very long periods of time for pretty minor um, acts that if they were an adult, they would have, um, it would have been a crime. I think when the Supreme Court looked at this in the 1960s, in a case, the most important case is called In Re Galt. And it was a case in which young Gerald Galt made a lewd phone call. And if he had been an adult, he would have potentially gotten a fine or 30 days in jail. And instead, with no hearing, no lawyer, no notice, no witnesses, he got uh, six years in the, in the state reform school. And fortunately, there was a lawyer in Arizona who was connected to the ACLU, and she helped to appeal that case, and it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court basically said that even though this court is supposed to use some discretion, we have to add due process, which we have not added, and so a number of due process rights have been layered on top of the court, in particular, the right to counsel, the right to notice of the petition against you, um, the ability to cross-examine witnesses. But even so, as late as the 2010s, when the Department of Justice was looking at courts around the country, they still discovered that in many courts, in many juvenile courts or family courts, there was still no due process. Young people weren't getting assigned counsel. They were still getting punishments that, that were more serious than they should have. And perhaps most concerning is that the young people who find themselves in court are disproportionately poor and disproportionately young people of color, especially Black and Native American children. Wow, that's interesting. How, how is it with the Black and Native American children, uh, you, you know, being like, you know, distinguished or, you know, getting in trouble, profiled or whatever you call it? It's like, you know, what is like the main, main reason why that category gets so spotlighted and they get like the most harsh treatment? Well, I mean, there is certainly some of our basic racism in this country. Unfortunately, one of the things that I was so surprised at as I began digging into the history of the court is that as the court was started in 1899 and as early as the 1910s, there were reports about the court identifying that um, children who were being brought to the court and families that were being brought to the court were dis always disproportionately poor. This is a court predominantly for poor people. It has been since its beginning. But what really surprised me was that since the beginning, it has disproportionately brought children and families of color under its under its mantle. And part of the reason is these are 
communities that are more closely surveyed. They are communities that have that are much more in the public eye because there's generally a larger police presence. So often you had acts that young people were committing that yet other young people were committing in other neighborhoods, but they weren't being arrested and they weren't being brought into court. Wow, that is something as well, too. And of course, um, you got you got the um, family policing as well, too, and that's gotten out of control. And um, there's been some cases where it's just like, you know, sometimes they uh, do things for profit as well, too. Like, you know, you know, bring in like so many and they get a, a profit and then you bring someone in, you give like, you know, 30 days, whatever it is. And and, and, and the system gets a profit and uh, it's supposed to go back to help families. But there's been reports that uh, money just goes to themselves or whoever makes it a business out of it. Well, I would say that the family court especially turned into an industry starting in the 1970s. As, as the country began to um, develop a reporting system of suspected neglect or abuse, the, the number of families that were um, reported on just skyrocketed, even though the vast majority of those reports are families are for what we call today neglect and often is about poverty and also about other inequalities, the lack of services in, in the community. We spend most recently, the last, uh, at last count, which was about in 2019, um, about $15 billion a year across the country for out-of-home care for children. Wow. So, and overall, we spend a, about $34 billion for the whole system, the whole what I call the family regulation or family policing system, but most people think of as child protection or child welfare. And of that 34 billion, only 14% of it goes for any kind of preventive services at all. So we, we have reports of about, um, over 4 million reports in a year about almost 8 million children, yet two-thirds th two to three-quarters of those reports get screened out at some point along the way. And that means that so many of these families are disrupted by an investigation, but, but it never turns into something that can be sustained and justified for bringing the young the family into court only about a half a million cases end up in court each year but families are disrupted and afraid about being taken to court and so one of the problems with this reporting system is that families no longer reach out to trusted um, 
services or service providers because they're afraid in many communities that they will get reported for asking for help. So that's true with a doctor. It might be true with a teacher or a school system. It might even be true um, for, for being involved in a, in a community program, but there are social workers who are mandated reporters. So the system has just ballooned, even though the vast majority of those cases are not the kinds of cases that we read about in the news, the, the terrible tragedy. Yes, of course you need a system that for that much smaller percentage, we wanna keep those children safe and we need a legal system in order to determine whether in fact that, that child has been subject to serious neglect or serious abuse. But for the whole rest of the system, mostly what we need are services in communities that are community developed and that we trust communities if they have the resources to actually come up with their own solutions. And I would say that the biggest change in the last decade of those of us who have worked in this system for our whole lives is that we have listened much more carefully to impacted families and impacted youth about their experiences in these systems, which makes us realize as professionals that we need to be allies with them, but they need to really be the leaders. They need to say, here's what we need. And most of what they need is what all families need. They need good healthcare, they need good school systems, they need good um, nutrition and housing and good substance use treatment for this opioid epidemic. Right, Sorry. the, the epidemic. epidemic. Yeah, that's been big. Opioids, fentanyl, meth, and um, I'm trying to think what's that one other synthetic yeah. um, that's been out as well, too. I was talking to somebody about that earlier, and they said that um, – you know, fentanyl has been on the rise like crazy too. transport right. and everything else. And, you know, a lot of it's coming and, out of Detroit these days, too. Well, and also, you know, it has devastated um, rural communities, which are especially in the in much of the Midwest, the area where you live in. These are these are predominantly rural white communities that are poor that are being impacted, Native American communities being impacted. And the problem is that the resources for that kind of treatment what, and mental health treatment and substance use treatment simply isn't available. And you don't want a family to have to go through a court system just to get services that really need to be in the community. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, uh, how do the courts continue to flourish? Um, how else do they continue to flourish despite a, a pretty much a broken system? Well, <laughs> that may be the 
the $64,000 question. <laughs> it, it it's is... basically digging deep other than what we talked about. It's like, how else? How else? So. Right. How else? Well, I think it's very important for people to realize that one of the things this court has done as in its role as a social court is to draw services under the court's mantle. And that can mean that the resources are not in the community, it's in the court system. So in order to get services, you need to somehow be in the court system. I think perhaps the worst example, at least for me, is what we call status offenses. And I don't know if you know what that is, that, but that's, that's, a, that's when- a, That's good. What, what is that exactly status yeah. offenses? I'm glad you brought that up. This is the first term, first time I've ever heard of it. Yeah. Well, when the court was started, it was part of delinquency. So a young person could get brought to court for breaking the law, that's delinquency today, or for misbehaving, not breaking the law. So what does that mean? It means that a young person is truant. They've run away from home. Maybe they're underage drinking. Maybe they're not listening to their parents. Maybe they're getting into trouble with friends, but not trouble that's actually breaking the law. Mm -hmm. And in the 1970s, the delinquency was broken into two parts. One part was that if you, if you broke a law that as an adult would be a crime, you could be charged with delinquency. But status offenses being broken off from delinquency, they weren't abolished. Instead, there was a whole new system created that if you misbehave because you were under 18, you could be brought to court by law enforcement, by schools, but, and even by your parents. And often parents brought their their child to court because they couldn't find what they needed or couldn't afford what they needed in the community. But once the young person got into court, what happened was the parents lost all control. They still do today. They lose control over what to decide about their child. And so most of the parents who find themselves there realize, oh my goodness, now this judge has control over what can be decided about my child. I don't. Even more so, schools and law enforcement bring young people into court, again, for misbehaving, but not breaking the law. And what we know is that, again, these are disproportionately poor young people, and they are disproportionately young people of color. What one of my recommendations um, is to eliminate status offense jurisdiction at all. In the last 20 years, the number of young people brought to court on these allegations has dropped from 200,000 to less than 100,000. Wow. And that's mostly because 
judges and state agencies are creating diversion programs so that they don't end up in court. So that's a good thing. But what would be a better thing would be to eliminate the jurisdiction entirely. Because just like parents are afraid to go to the doctor sometimes because they think they're going to be charged with neglecting their child, if if this jurisdiction, this status offense jurisdiction still exists, then law enforcement and schools can continue to use it. Even if those young people end up being diverted out of the court, they end up having to, to spend some time under the supervision of a court system. And what we know is that young people respond better to voluntary programs than they do to mandatory programs. So in other words, they volunteer instead of being forced into. Exactly. And and as early as, um, well, the middle part of the 20th century, there were there were commissions, even a presidential commission saying we should keep as many of these young people out of court because they don't belong there. It's they're not breaking the law. And as one judge who has worked hard in recent years to decrease the number of kids who come in said, I did a lot of bad things as an adolescent. But nobody arrested me because I lived in a community that they weren't paying attention to. And now I'm a judge. So let's think differently about who we're bringing into court, because often we're doing more harm than good. Mm-hmm. And do you think there's probably like an extent of overreach when it comes to the, to the court system and law enforcement and everything at times? Oh, absolutely. In many different ways. Um, The international standard for criminal responsibility for children is age 14. So below 14 in much of the world, a child who commits a crime is is not brought into a juvenile or criminal system. There, there are attempts to figure out why a child that young is getting into trouble, but doesn't belong in a system of punishment because they're too young to understand that. In our country, different states have different lower levels. Um, the lowest level of, of is 12, but most states, there's no lower level. So there are states where children six, seven, eight can be arrested and taken to court for an act which, yes, we we don't want them breaking the law, doing whatever wrong they are alleged to have done. But do we really think that a, a, a child going through this system understands it? They don't. They, they can't. I mean, we already know that adolescents are different than adults, and they don't have the same capacity to understand the consequences of what they do. Even our Supreme Court has said that. Mm-hmm. But younger children, 
how how do we think we're going to help them grow into a productive adulthood if we are um, saying when they're six, seven, eight, nine that they're delinquent and that they need to be punished? So that's another place that really has to change if we're going to if we're going to treat children as they need to be treated. Mm -hmm. And do you think the uh, social media has really um, inflamed the whole thing? Like you see on the news all the time, you know, um, you know, six year old gets arrested for, um, you know, starting a fire. Seven year old gets arrested for uh, kicking a dog and um, an eight year old gets arrested for uh, biting a girl and they get thrown in the federal prison. Do you think social media has, um, you know, created this firestorm of, um, throwing these six, seven, eight, 10 year olds into a uh, federal prison? Well, I, I do. I think that the media, you know, traditionally, if it bleeds, it leads or right. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been there and done that. I studied journalism. If it bleeds, it leads. Yes. Right. And I think that the public has a very skewed understanding of Um, juvenile crime. So juvenile crime, I think, is at its lowest since 1996. So we're talking about, um, I think, in the last year, the the arrest rate, in in the last, I want to make sure I get this right, there's been a 77% decrease in the number of arrests of young people in the last two decades. Wow. So, yeah. And so what I think it's, re- but the public doesn't realize that. They don't realize that there isn't a juvenile crime spree going on. In fact, it's the opposite. And at, and at last count, I think that the number of juveniles placed into facilities for delinquency has gone down from oh, slightly over 100,000 to about 25,000 across the country. Wow. So what we're seeing is a, a vast difference that the public doesn't understand because what happens is you get some terrible thing happening, you know, which of course upsets everybody, but it, it's not at all reflective of the larger numbers, which are, are not going up as everyone you would think in this political time seems to say, Mm -hmm. but rather they've gone down. And so, so we really need to address the public really needs to understand that we're not going through a criminal, a a juvenile crime spree. And instead, you know, we can really, because the numbers are so much lower, we can really think about alternatives because one of the problems is the deeper a young person gets into this system, the more likely they're going to stay in the system and even graduate to the adult criminal system. Hmm. And so we, we want to bring as few of them in as possible. 
Okay. All right. And and uh, and of course, uh, what else? What else uh, is uh, Jane uh, Spinnett going to recommend about ending the family court and also reversing these trends? We'll find out just one minute in the book of the end of family court. You listen to the Mike Wagner show at the Mike Wagner show.com powered by Soundcraft studios and brought to you by official sponsor of the Mike Wagner show. International warring author Mia Molson's the missing. We'll be back with author Jane Spinnett of the end of family court after this time. We're back with author Jane Spinnett of the end of family court here on the Mike Wagner show. Professor law emeritus at Columbia school uh, receiving numerous awards for her work on behalf of children and families. You cover a lot of ground, which is terrific. I learned a lot. And of course, um, you talked about some of the things like um, radically reimagining um, the care for children without destructing um, state intervention. And um, what what else would you recommend uh, putting an end to family court? How else would you change it? We cover some of the basics. How else would you change? Well, let's go back to what most people understand as a child protective system and and many of us now call a family regulation or family policing system. Um, I did talk already about changing the mandatory reporting system because it brings too many families into the system um, who have not been neglecting or abusing their children. And so there is a push now to rethink this system and to think more about how can professionals who work in the system support children and families instead of report on them. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean there should be no reporting. Um, but if we had a voluntary system, because our mandatory system for most people who interact with children in any way um, worries people because they think they'll be liable for not reporting. Mm -hmm. They also tend to think that if they report, the system is going to help these families. And what we have learned over time is that that's simply not true. Most of the families reported don't even get services um, for, for what they need. So we need to change that so that, again, families feel that they can reach out for help when they need it and not worry that the first thing someone's going to do is report. We also need to think differently when children are taken from their families. We have a system that allegedly says that if a child is taken away, um, removed from their family, the first goal is supposed to be reunification under federal law. Mm -hmm. But in fact, under federal law, states are rewarded for keeping children in foster care and even for adoptions. They wow. get bonuses for terminating parental rights and um, having children be adopted. But adoption is something of a myth because while of course there are some successful adoptions. I'm not suggesting that there are none. But what we know is that many of these adoptions are not successful. 
there are even there is even a category now that we call broken adoptions where young people come back into foster care because their adoptive parents don't want them anymore and there is even judges who rev there there are now laws on the books to reverse termination of parental rights because the now that since the adoption has broken the the only option may be for the child to return to their family to their birth parents except it's such a back end solution because if the supports had been there either before the child ever had to be removed or during the period that the child was in foster care toward reunification, then it would be much more likely that, the, that parental rights would never have been terminated. So what we call permanency is not it in this system is not actually permanent because many, many children have termination of parental rights with no adoption. Those are the young people I was talking about before who age out of foster care with no family, or they, they end up um, in a situation in which they age out and guess where they go? They go home to their families, but their families have never been given the supports they need. And so these young people have much worse outcomes wow. in adulthood than young people who had the same demographics where sometimes they decided they'd remove a child, sometimes they decided they wouldn't remove a child. Those children who weren't removed, even though they, they were the same allegations, ended up better off than the children who were removed. Wow. That is something. It takes a lot as well, too. You got some great insight. And uh, where can we uh, find the end uh, of family court at? Well, you can Google it. And the first thing that comes up is the end of family court. It's NYU Press. Uh, you can also Google me and my uh, page comes up at Columbia Law School. And I am putting together a website. Uh, but the easiest way is just to Google the name of the book, and it's the first thing that comes up. We will certainly check that out. Once again, we're with author Jane Spinnaker of the End of Family Court here on the Mike Widener Show, Professor Law Emeritus at Columbia Law School and a few other things. And uh, just a couple more things, Jane, what else can you expect me in 2023 and beyond? What can I expect? Um, here's, here's what's happening Mike, that I think is most important is the activism of impacted families and impacted communities that has grown definitely in the last two decades, but I would say was given a real boost during the pandemic. And that's because there was so much mutual aid in communities during the pandemic that um, communities saw they could really help each other. The other thing that happened was there were all those federal checks that went to families. Mm -hmm. And guess what? Reporting of children 
as child maltreatment went down and post-pandemic, what we have learned so far from the studies that have come out is that abuse and neglect did not go up during that period. So how do you like that? And it's not what we're starting to see. It's not just because children weren't in school. It was that there were they were their families were in many ways less stressed because they had a little bit more money to take care of their children, but also because communities really stepped up to help each other. So I think that these trends are really important to pay attention to. I also think states are beginning to look at the idea of when should we intervene in family life? And there has been a beginning, I would say, of a reckoning that this system has been so broken. It's not gonna be fixed by more money. It's not gonna be fixed by more judges. It really needs to shrink so that judges both have fewer cases, but also less discretion. And it needs to be, I call it the end of family court because it needs to be, whatever's left needs to be a court of law not a court where judges think they're solving family problems or fixing families, but a court of law when there's a legal issue that has to be determined. And so I am somewhat optimistic that we can move forward in this way. Mm-hmm. And and that is a very good idea you have as well, Jane. And uh, who do you consider biggest influence in your career? Oh, Wow. Well, I would say that the person who, my teacher at NYU Law School, Marty Guggenheim, certainly set me on this path. But I think my greatest teachers have been my clients, both my child clients and my parent clients, who really taught me to understand what they were going through what they were capable of, what their strengths were. You know, this system looks at these families and sees their problems or their weaknesses. And and what I learned to do over time was to see their strengths and to recognize um, what they were capable of doing. And mm-hmm. so it it that's really probably my greatest influence. That certainly is, and very amazing as well. And what's the best advice you can give to anybody at this point, Jane? Well, I think the best advice is to pay close attention um, to real news and not fake news. (laughs) (laughs) And Best advice out there. (laughs) (laughs) And I think to um, see, everyone should see themselves as responsible for all families, not just our own families, but all families in our community. And then I think we can begin to make real change when we are responsible for each other. Mm-hmm. And very responsible indeed. That's very good advice. Once again, with author Jane Spinnick of the End of Family Court, Professor Law Emeritus at Columbia School here on the Mike Wagner Show. Jane, a very big thank you for your time. You've been absolutely fantastic. Learned a lot from you. Looking forward to having you again soon. Keep us up to date. Keep in touch. Love to have you back. 
Once again, what's your website? How do people contact you? Where can people purchase or check out your book? Oh, yeah. At, on Google is the easiest way. It's NYU Press. And thanks so much, so much, Mike, for the conversation. And great to have you on as well. Once again, Jenna, very big thank you for your time. You've been absolutely amazing. Looking forward to having you again soon. Keep us up to date. Keep in touch. Love to have you back. Wish you all best. And Jane, you definitely have a great future ahead of you. Thank you.